So good evening. And first to just acknowledge this journey we've been on this week. Uh, the room feels so different than it did almost seven, seven days ago. And it just, um, I'm full of a lot of appreciation for the journeys that you've all been on. It's amazing that there's been so many kind of unique experiences that are all the same in a funny kind of way. And um, us sitting here like this in this retreat called Intimacy with Life and this palpable feeling of um, tenderizing that I'm in touch with right now, that you've expressed in the various interviews and groups that I've sat with. It's just something really precious about that. So I feel uh, grateful. And this is an experience of Sangha that I think so many of us come to get this feeling of Sangha. Um, this feeling of togetherness in silence, and um, which gives us an opportunity to really work with our minds and hearts and align ourselves so that we can walk in the world with a bit more integrity, a bit more grace, a bit more sensitivity to our relatedness and our kinship. And that's what we're leaning into I hope not too soon. We have a good um, 16 hours left <laughs> to really stay in, our, in the soup that we're all a part of seasoning that the world needs to taste. So I'm hopeful. Um, I have a lot of hope in my heart as I look out at you this evening. And I thank you for your practice. <laughs> and um, I want you to know that your life is waiting for you when you leave here. And the question is, is how are you going to deal with walking in the world with this big heart of yours that you've been touching into since you've been here? What will you do with uh, this tenderness that we've been uh, cultivating? So tonight I'd like to talk about the relationship between suffering and faith and talk about how that supports us in being in the world day to day, the world as our retreat, as opposed to going away to retreat. And even as I talk about how we are in the world and how, you know, this looks like in our lives outside of this retreat, I want you to still uh, manage to keep some degree of your attention on your body and breath as you're listening to the talk, just so we can just stay here as much as we can. In the Buddhist teachings on the liberative dependent arising teachings, there's 12 links that uh, lead to a liberative mind state. And the first link is suffering, and the second link is faith. And I've been sitting with this, it's been a practice over the last few months actually, of really taking a look at the relationship and the dance between the two. And as you sit with any intentional practice, what starts to come to you are all kinds of messages, either in your relationships or uh, in your readings. You know, you start to get information that feeds uh, and satisfies some of the curiosity that you have in your inquiry. So I ran about, across a quote by the American novelist and poet, 
and social critic James Baldwin, who says, people who do not suffer cannot grow up. They can never discover who they are. And that really struck me as true when I look at my own experience. And the Buddha says, the Buddha specialized in suffering and the liberation from suffering. You know, he, uh, he, um, he figured a way through his own practice and through his own example to uh, make available to us a number of teachings that supported liberation that were from his experience. And it was rooted in a relationship with suffering, even suffering and privilege, that um, there was even more to comfort than, than he had been conditioned to believe. So one of the questions we can maybe begin with as a reflection is, what brought you into the Dharma? How has your life seasoned, been seasoned by suffering? How has your life been seasoned by suffering? And what faith dressed in suffering, or what suffering dressed in faith, actually got you here to sit on the cushion for this particular retreat? So many of you that I've met with have generously shared this dance of suffering and faith and hope and, you know, being in awe and um, knowing that there's something you're working with here that that's, can't be controlled. So who knows what the real word of that should be. So we have to turn to our experience to really make sense out of these teachings. I'd like to share a few experiences in my own life that danced with, with, um, with uh, faith and, and suffering, just to kind of illustrate uh, how it's worked for me. And these are just potent moments that I think were pointers uh, to something more vast and amazing. So I grew up uh, in the heat of um, the civil rights movement in South Central Los Angeles. And I grew up in an atmosphere of fear, violence, and jazz. <laughs> you know? I think the faith was the jazz part. <laughs> there were eight in my family, and I was number five. And what that meant is I never got my piece of the chicken. That's all that meant. <laughs> the emphasis in my family growing up was on survival. It wasn't so much on ambition. It was on survival and how you stay out of harm's way. And that was inside the family system and also outside the family system in our community that was so heated and uh, on fire, especially against black folks. So I grew up in the church, and um, we went to church every Sunday. And the relationship with faith in the church was one of damnation and uh, obedience. And my experience with the church was more an experience of community more than it was of necessarily the beliefs and the teachings. It wasn't that I disbelieved them, but that was a meeting place where people came together to feel safe and to feel some sense of support. And at the, around the age of seven, I'll never forget my great-grandmother, who uh, I would see in the kitchen with her apron on, pacing the floor back and forth like a weary panther uttering words of worry. She worried about her children. She worried about her grandchildren. She worried about her great-grandchildren because she couldn't keep them, she couldn't protect them from the violence against their bodies. And she worried and worried 
and worried. And I worried because I couldn't protect her. I couldn't make it go away. And I loved her, and, and she was just saturated with worry. And I think she died of a broken heart. And when she died, I remember very pointedly in that moment saying, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. I'm not going out like this. I was seven, and I remember making that deal with myself. And then ten years later, my father was murdered. My father was killed by his girlfriend in a jealous rage. And I don't remember that being so traumatic at the time, but what I do remember is how tightly I held on to my two-year-old son and how afraid I was for his life. And the question I had with that pointed moment was, what's the value of a life? What is the point of it? What, 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 it, what, it, what is this thing called life if the people I see and the people I love seem to be so endangered? So several years after that, I went through periods of rage, raw, righteous rage. I even got a job as an organizational consultant where I could point out to people how screwed up they were and get paid well for it. (laughs) You know? So I was actually trained in this kind of warrior righteousness. Uh, It... uh, It had some rewards, but it wasn't liberating. (laughs) And then at 27, I had open-heart surgery. I had open-heart surgery on a mitral valve prolapse, a congenital heart uh, disease. They went in there to repair the heart valve, but when they got in there, they were able to repair it. They went in to replace it. And all I can think about in preparation of that surgery is that these white doctors who I had been trained to distrust all my life, these white doctors had more access to my heart than I did. And I said, that, it, it's got to be another way. It's got to be a better way. So it was sobering in the recovery of the heart surgery, as I got my health back a bit um, and felt more confident in my 30s, I fell in love with a woman. And I was in graduate school, and I had never felt my heart be so wide open. I had never known love like this. And it was a funny thing because my mother had warned me against these people, when I was younger and then when I fell in love with this woman it all came back to me and it was like wow if she had told me sooner I could have saved a lot of time here (laughs) but what was so poignant was um, how how what it cracked my heart open to the this kind of vast indiscriminate, undefined way of loving. It was new for me, and it was very liberating. And then I moved to Santa Cruz, and I had this dream while I was living there. You know Santa Cruz is where you dream, and it's the land of spiritual materialism. And So anything you think you want to do, you can do in the land of California, Santa Cruz. So... I lived there for several years, and I had this dream of sitting, of being this fat guy sitting on some flower in the middle of a very still lake, and it was raining and thundering lightning, and um, the lightning had chiseled pieces of faces of people I had been in conflict with throughout my life, and it was just showering down on my head. And, um, but what was poignant about the dream was that 
Um, I had never felt more content. I was content and at ease and in my seat. And I, I found that to be very um, uh, interesting, that one could be in a torrential st- storm and be at ease. So I didn't know at the time that that had anything to do with Buddhism. But I think the Buddha, or my Buddha nature, was flirting with me at that time. And fast forward, I end up in China at the Women's Beijing Conference, did a workshop there on uh, generational healing. And we go on this tour, there's a group of us, and I'm standing next to this African-American woman who had long dreadlocks at the time. I had big hair, long dreadlocks. And we're both staring at this two-story Buddha with tears streaming down our eyes. And she turns and looks at me and she says, do you meditate? And I'm, I'm saying, well, no, not, not really. And she said, where do you live? And I said, who is this stranger talking to me in China? She happened to be the only other black woman I could see for miles. So I wasn't trying to get rid of her, you know. So... Um, She said, where do you live? I said, well, I live in Berkeley. Now, only a person from Berkeley would say they live in Berkeley in China and assume everybody knows where that is. (laughs) It only happens that way. And she said, I live in Marin. I'm thinking, what is this? And she said, I'm on the board at Spirit Rock, and I want you to come meditate with me. And I said, what? Are you serious? She said, and I'm on the diversity council, and I want you to join, and I think you would love it. And I said, well, I don't know about all that diversity stuff because I'm beyond that now. I did that at some other period. (laughs) And she said, just come. Come and join me. And um, so I I, I first was hoping she was flirting with me, but that really wasn't the case. (laughs) So I joined her on a Monday night and went to Spirit Rock and um, heard Jack talk. And this is what he started his talk with. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you really are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are, and wants to be awakened to this mystery. And because this is a part of you, it takes you on this journey of discovery. So I was just, it was a come to Jesus moment. (laughs) Fell in love with Jack, his heart. And it occurred to me um, that it's always been about matters of the heart. My journey's always been about matters of the heart. So Spirit Rock became my spiritual community, and this was a real turning point for me. And then there was a group of nine women, um, plus Jack, that, that Alice Walker organized that we were in... Um, a committed sangha for 10 years where we met once a month for a half a day. And it was, it was considered a wisdom circle, so we shared our lives and talked about the Dharma. And over time, I became to realize, I began to realize that the symbol of me being the fat guy on the lake, on the flower, with the firing of lightning was um, my own Buddha nature sitting on the lotus flower, being in a peaceful war with Mara. So this kind of um, uh, uh, journey to who you are was, uh, and who I was was very much a part of um, what I consider faith and how suffering was a big part of what, what instigated 
not just the experiences of faith, but the questions that lead you to examine uh, for yourself what faith is. So it's not about my story so much as it is about um, what we come to know through the experience, through the initiation of suffering in our lives. So there are times when we can glimpse through our experiences, whether it's the ones you've been having here on retreat, where you've been suffering maybe physically, maybe psychologically, um, where you feel hooked and in a samsaric cycle, where it appears that it's never going to end, um, and yet this seems to be the very uh, process of, uh, that cultivates faith. So we're all in a relationship with faith, and you know, you would probably be surprised to know the lives and the journey of the people sitting right near you. You know, we, we get so caught in what we know about our own lives and our own suffering that we don't feel, um, the, that we don't tune in sometimes to this um, collective that we're a part of. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translates a lot of the Buddha's discourses, says that faith is compared to a hand and a seed. A hand in that it's needed to take hold of beneficial practices like the ones we've been experiencing this week. And it can be compared to a seed in that it is the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtue the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtues. And we experience faith in a varying, in varying degrees and maybe even as some kind of progression for ourselves. So there's blind faith, for example. Blind faith was my relationship with Dr. Marlene Schoonover when I met her in China. That was a hand she said, come and join me. I, I think you'll like this. And it was, a, it was a hand because it's so interesting to see a, another African-American in China who's not Christian that's inviting me to Spirit Rock. So I felt that was, there was something there for me. It really spoke to my heart. And it was intrigue as well because it was against the stream. It was kind of against the grain, which brought with it a, a, a different kind of heightened kind of interest for me. And then there's bright faith. Bright faith happens often when we hear the Dharma, we hear the teachings, and we get lit up like a, like a tree. Jack's talk was a seed it planted a certain awe. It struck a sense of familiarity. It gave me hope. It was a language I, was, I didn't realize I was searching for. It had me believing that something was possible around this suffering or around this uh, struggle that I had been in with life. And in the bright faith, when we find ourselves attracted to a teacher, we're kind of borrowing their faith for a while until we cultivate our own. We get awestruck by, you know, uh, Tara's podcast and, you know, Jonathan's concentration practices and, um, and uh, you know, Pat's capacity to explain something and... Um, minute detail and in, in vastness. You know, you get attracted to teachers' hearts and their wisdom, and you lean into that. It's a bright faith. It's borrowing faith until you cultivate faith on your own. And then there's a leap of faith that we can experience. You know, where we leap into the Dharma, we... Um, it's a clear yes. It's a turning for many of us. It's probably that yes 
that had to sort through things enough to show up on a retreat like this. You know, this clearing where you say, I'm going for it. And we make those choices. It's that choice where we decide we're going to break convention and give it our attention, give this practice our attention. It's a curiosity and willingness to reorient and renegotiate our habits of mind. And this leap of faith is, is this turning for me was also um, not faith. It was a renegotiation with the whole relationship with faith because it wasn't faith as a savior. It wasn't faith as something outside of myself. It was actually a recognition of our interdependence, which I'll talk about a little in a little bit. So faith in the Buddhist tradition is cultivated through refuge, taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. Many students and practitioners went to the Buddha um, and asked him about refuge. And he said, be, be one's own refuge. Have refuge, have the Dharma as refuge, and make yourself a refuge for all beings. So one of the ways in this tradition that that's formally practice is through the path of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva um, is, is who the Buddha was referred to prior to being enlightened. So uh, the Buddha got awake, and we're still awakening, so we're not there yet. So we could consider ourselves bodhisattvas on the path, and there's a formal... Um, vows that are taken. Um, But the Bodhisattva is an ordinary person like you or me who cultivates their heart and mind for the benefit of all beings. So it's not just about sitting and dealing with our own suffering, but the whole point of dealing with our suffering is so that we can serve for the benefit of all beings. The Bodhisattva uses every obstacle in life as a way to wake up. So it's not so much that anything is a problem. It becomes an opportunity to live the practice, cultivate the heart, and then offer it back out into the system of collective. Now, the vows that they take are pretty elaborate, and this is one version of them. I vow to save all beings from difficulties. I vow to destroy all evil passions. I vow to learn the truth and teach others. And I vow to lead all beings to Buddhahood. And the whole point of a bodhisattva is that the work is never done. The understanding is the work is never done until all beings are free from suffering. Can you imagine your practice being devoted in that particular way? The only way we can walk in the world and grasp this concept is to understand a few core principles about the teachings that I think is useful for us as we um, think about how we walk in the world. Um, And one principle is the principle of interdependence. That we're all a part of something larger than our individual selves. We're kind of this karmic web of humanity. And what we do matters. One way I describe this sometimes is that we coexist in this vast, skinless body held together by the gravitational pull of Mother Earth's love. 
and we're kind of shaped and um, colored and all these other things for the purpose of this collective, each serving a part that supports the whole. It's kind of a proprioceptive relationship that we have with all existence. And we're basically one big nervous system. Eckhart Tolle says it this way. He says, ultimately, you are not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So everything we see happening in the world today, these wars, conflicts, elections, all the awe, the beauty, is the result of past actions. Past actions, past seeds that have been planted that are now blooming. And what we do in response to it will also bloom. So what we do, how we walk in the world, what we carry with us, what's informing our actions, all has karmic consequences. And as we become more conscious and curious about our conditioning and our this kind of collective interdependent reality, it, you know, it, inf- it informs our choices and that enhances our kinship and relatedness and uh, the ripple effect in the world. So interdependence is a, one of the virtues that the Bodhisattva is, is understanding in order to make a vow for all sentient beings. Another one is the virtues of kindness and harmlessness. that the practice of kindness is a weapon of mass healing (laughs) and non-harming in body, mind, and heart are essential for social healing, stability, and well-being. When we're practicing kindness and non-harming, it makes it safe for everybody, all beings, to come out of hiding. We know people and have known of people that walk in the world with this, this understanding of inter, interdependence, uh, kindness, and harmlessness. We know through the Lakota people of North America in their prayer of oneness, all are related. All my relatives. The sense of allness not just my practice, but for all beings. We get it through the eloquent words of Dr. Martin Luther King when he says that we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. What you do matters, and what you do matters. And he says this is the interrelated structure of reality. In other words, it's the nature of reality that we are part of this one garment. Getting that wrapped around our head and our practice is a part of um, uh, spiritual maturity and responsibility we have uh, with this practice. We hear it in the words of Gandhi when Gandhi says, We but mirror the world. And Thich Nhat Hanh tells us that the next Buddha will be a Sangha. So the, the whole notion of this sense of us, the realization of this, is so potent. So we don't have to be as grand as these greats to walk in the world and leave this retreat. Um, but they are pointing us to what's possible, what the heart and mind is capable of doing, the kind of care and consciousness that supports 
um, not just ourselves waking up, but what supports waking up in the world. And these giants, or these contemporary bodhisattvas, came to realize again and again that uh, what must be done, what, what must be done, needs to be done peacefully for the benefit of current and future generations. So this understanding of interdependence, kind-heartedness, harmlessness are really important as we move um, with our practice. Another thing to keep in mind as we move beyond our own uh, uh, practice is to understand the three characteristics of our existence. And we've been talking about them in different ways this week. I like to summarize these three characteristics by, with the mantra that I, that I use that I say, life is not personal, is not permanent, and is not perfect. When I'm walking around, you know, I run into an obstacle and, you know, I have to pull back sometimes and say, okay, am I taking this personal? Am I thinking this is permanent? Or do I think this should be perfect? You know? And I have to just snap myself into uh, reality there. So three marks of existence or the three characteristics of existence is that nothing, that, that, that there is impermanence. You know, Anicca. Anicca. That's what Pat talked about. And there's, um, there's a non-self. Or there's, this, there's a nata. That, that the more we fixate on the self, the more we suffer. And, uh, and there's dukkha. We heard about dukkha from, you know, Jonathan, who was telling us about the hindrances, and Tara, who was talking about the critic self, all these ways that we can begin to look at the different forms of suffering that we are engaged in moment to moment, breath to breath. So we forget and we take things to be personal when they're not, when there's no solid self. And we need to remember that we're a constantly ever-changing series of processes that are happening all the time. Nothing solid is in our experience. And life, we forget that we take things to be permanent when they're impermanent. And we need to remind ourselves that the breath, our thoughts, these bodies, uh, our mind, even awareness itself comes and goes. And we forget that things don't always go our way and that we're going to lose some of the things we love, as Pat was speaking to so beautifully. And what we need to remember is that when we have fixed preferences and likes and dislikes, uh, we're going to suffer with that. We're going to suffer if we go on retreat as a form of escape from, from the world. And then we go back into a shocked reality <laughs> when we leave. So the practice is about being uh, right here and greeting what life offers, what blooms with a sense of kindness and understanding that it's not personal, it's not permanent, and it's not perfect, and it won't be. So faith is cultivated through uh, taking refuge. We can have faith in the Buddha as a historical figure who walked in the world, who through his example woke up. And we can have faith in our own Buddha nature, in our own uh, retrospective view of our life to see where we've come from and where we are. We can be one's own refuge. We can be the one who knows through our practice. And we can take faith in the, we can have faith in the Dharma, take refuge in the Dharma and the teachings 
not just as a concept, but as a practice on the cushion and in our day-to-day lives. To take refuge in the Dharma, we verify what we have faith in through our own examination. Confidence is built through walking the path, through living the practice. I remember on one of my earlier retreats here at IMCW, um, I was really anxious about giving talks. And um, I remember talking to Jonathan, and I said, you know, can you give me some advice on how to not run myself so crazy when I'm planning talks? And, and he says, there's two things you have to remember uh, all the time. And he says, when you teach, it's you say, what, this is what the Buddha taught, and this is how I know it to be true. And I think this is an offering for all of us. We read, we hear teachings, we we write, we take notes. This is what the teachings are, and this is how I know it to be true through my direct experience. And then he offered me one more thing, one more piece of advice that's just, I can't tell you how invaluable it's been. It happened when I was sitting down and I was about to give that first talk. He came over and whispered in my ear, don't fuck it up. And then when I looked over at him, Pat was sitting next to him and they were both giggling like little boys. So now I have that image of Jonathan, and now I have a new image of him riding through the Sahara Desert, this white tall boy on a bicycle. So It was just so helpful. What can I say? (laughs) So to this day, when I'm preparing a talk, it becomes a practice. And uh, I may have given the same talk before, but it's different each time because I'm different each time. And what it calls me to do is it calls me to ask myself, is it true for me? Does it still resonate And will it serve? We can ask ourselves these questions every time we have something to say to someone, every time we're questioning and having doubt in our own minds, every time we're looking at the various ways we serve in our lives. The great jazz bassist bassist Charlie Mingus says, In my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am. The reason it's difficult is because I'm changing all the time. It kind of puts a new meaning to all that jazz, right? So it's faith in the changing nature of things, faith faith in the teachings as not solid, but experiences to be known directly. And our meaning of it shifts and deepens over time as we stay with the practice. It's not like it's some destination and then, wow, we're there. It's really more about um, the integrity of the experience we're having in any given moment. So through our practice, we verify what faith is in an atmosphere of kind and kindness and care. I find this kind of reflection to be very restorative and humbling. So to take refuge in the Dharma, the Buddha says, to have the Dharma as refuge. Have the Dharma as refuge. Rest in the Dharma, rest in the teachings. And then there's faith in the Sangha. In monastic traditions, the Sangha were the monastics that went away. In our more contemporary or Western form, it 
we have monastics here as well. It could be long retreats. But I look at Sangha as um, more community, more our relationships. Um, And um, it's kind of like our relationships, those places where we have to open our mouths, (laughs) is where the practice of the Dharma really comes alive, you know, And I think looking at family relationships especially, so many of you are on that page, is so important to understanding how this all comes together. Family as Sangha. Um, My uh, sister passed away three weeks ago. And um, this was my oldest sister, and uh, she had pancreatic cancer, and she, she actually went pretty quickly. And um, she was also uh, the oldest sister who had a lot of the responsibility for raising us in the family, and she didn't like that. And she let us all know that. And she's a sister that hadn't spoken to me in two decades. And I wasn't even sure why, but um, she chose not to talk to me and didn't want to engage. And um, so over the years, I had become frustrated in my kind of one-sided attempt to connect with her. And I was ashamed of needing to connect with her at the same time. And I knew through my own experience of shame that, you know, um, that the ego can't really fix it that I need, needed to kind of call on something deeper than the just driven wanting to have her uh, love me and respond. So the extent of my relationship with my sister over the past several months as she was dying was to leave her voice messages, long ones, of which she never really returned. And in March, when I was teaching at uh, Spirit Rock's month-long retreat, uh, I woke up early and decided I was going to call her and leave her another long message. And this is what I said to her. I said, hello, it's me again. You know, everything sounds like a song. Hello, it's me you're looking for. (laughs) It wasn't that. I said, hello, it's me again. I know this is a difficult time for you. I'm imagining that you are both strong and afraid and that you are reflecting on your life, hopefully in kind ways. I want you to know that I love you and I have a request. I want you to forgive me. I'm not sure what I did for you to shut me out of your life for this for the past two decades, but it must have been hurtful and necessary, and I'm deeply sorry. My prayer is that we somehow rise above it. I'd like for us to bury this legacy that we inherited from mom of never forgiving. It's a weight that I'm sure your heart can do without right now. Please forgive me. You don't have to call me back. I will know if you forgive me. Most importantly, you will know. I want you to know that I'm deeply sorry for hurting you. I love you. I wish to be near you. And I will always love you. And she died about three weeks later. She didn't call me back. But there was something very important about making that call and not being dependent on whether she responded or not. The freedom I felt in my own heart and the letting go was an important uh, experience to have. And it's that groundless feeling that we get in those moments where we let go in our practice Um, from the thing that we think is going to to be good or better for us. It's hard for some of us to clear the nerve around a rotting cavity. 
And sometimes we trust the pain more than the dentist. And this is what, this was how my sister was. But I knew her heart. I knew her heart because we grew up together. We had the same pain in our family. And I knew we were both searching for love and freedom. So despite appearances and her harsh defenses, I knew, I knew her heart. And we all grieve differently. Sometimes faith supports us in grasping, and other times it supports us in letting go. But the grip of grief, as is any intense emotion, is in a peculiar kind of way, is not personal it's not permanent. And in this incident, it sure as hell wasn't perfect. <laughs> Going back home was a real trip as well. You know how you go back to the family system. Sometimes it seems, seems like it's been frozen in time. <laughs> and everybody's kind of in their outfit that they've worn since the day they were born. <laughs> but I could really feel my faith there with them. I could also feel my practice. You know, I could feel that um, I was capable of sitting with them without them needing to be different, without them needing to, to, to love me, but really being touched when it was happening. And I could also feel that what I was offering often was kind of a, had a silent impact. We, we didn't have to talk about it. It was something we can feel. So when the heart and mind is clear and it desires to belong, it finds a way. And this is our invitation when we are in the world, walking the world, to kind of ask ourselves that question, you know, what am I desiring as I walk, walk in the world? is somewhere in my intention, an intention to belong, to connect, to know, know our relatedness, to never give up on the human heart. I know through this practice that I um, have more and more learned that I'm not as afraid of a broken heart, you know, I used to be more afraid of it, but I'm less afraid of the heart being broken as it's before, as before. And when we're healing in our relationships, sometimes it begins with a foggy frustration or some kind of deep, wordless hurt, some itch we can't scratch. But when that is attended to, with a kind awareness, we become more clear, more stable, and more confident in our capacity to be in a world with a heart wide open in a wise way. So faith is about letting go, surrendering one's heart, giving up on perfection, giving up on something or someone being wrong, giving up on trying to have a better childhood, a better past, or a better present. Yeah. So refuge in the Sangha. The Buddha is saying through our own example, Make yourself a refuge to all beings and however you do that. And this is one of the real values of the heart practices we've been doing this week. And there can be a loss of faith that we experience. We've heard a bit of that this week. And... Um, There's a lot of 
reasons to feel like we can lose faith in, in the world today when we look around at what's happening. But Ajahn Sachito said, faith is a sustained wonder. Faith is a sustained wonder. And it reminded me of my Tibetan teacher, Abba Cecil Mahardi, who told me a story years ago about the Buddha being tossed out of a hundred-story building that had been caught on fire. Somebody threw him out to save him. And then a woman who saw him floating down at around the 50th floor looked out and said, Oh, my gosh, are you okay? And the Buddha responded back, So far, so good. (laughs) So far, so good. Let's not get too ahead of things, you know. You never know what's going to happen. So we can recommit to faith moment to moment, breath to breath. We haven't hit bottom yet. Let's wait and see. It's kind of humor and lightheartedness we can have. You know, we can know suffering and also know we're okay through this practice. We can know suffering and know we're okay. So Young Rinpoche said, uh, was telling the story, uh, one of his um, students came and said, I want to be liberated, but I don't, know the, I don't follow the breath, I don't sit well, I just don't do anything well. And Rinpoche said, what did you do in your previous life? And the yogi said, I was a thief. And Rinpoche said, Great, then steal your thoughts and place them on the altar of presence. Place them on the altar of presence. Presence is key to faith. It's part of the sustained wonder. So the Buddha asked us to reflect on our lives often. So it's a beautiful practice for us to from time to time, take our seat, take a few breaths, and reflect on our lives. We can care for the earth, we can care for each other, and especially the children. I have faith in the generations. My great-grandmother would be happy to know that I live to be a great-grandmother. And that I, too, worry about the children and the black bodies that are uh, endangered at this time once again in our lives. And she would be happy to know that I'm doing walking meditation instead of pacing the floor like a panther. (laughs) I think she would be happy about that. I have faith in the heart's capacity to be broken again and again and to be healed, opened, and expanded for care for others. I've seen that a lot this week from each of you in this practice, this generosity of heart through suffering. I have faith in impermanence knowing that I can change and shift when I reflect on my life. I'm so glad I'm not what I used to be, (laughs) you know, that I've shifted from being um, a rager to writing a book about it to then teaching the Dharma all in one lifetime. And who knows what else could happen. I believe that change is all there is not because it's a concept, but because it's something I live and it's something you live. And the Buddha says, don't take my word for it. Know for yourself. Know this practice for yourself. Wake up in this practice for yourself. Your life is waiting for you when you leave this retreat, the question becomes, what 
How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to extend your heart so that life is a retreat, not just going away on retreat? It's not so much how you do that, but it's the quality of attention you bring to that. It's your understanding of what you're doing moment to moment. It's about what you put refuge in. And the Buddha asks us to be your own refuge. Have the Dharma as refuge. And make yourself a refuge for all beings. Oh, perhaps this is good for now. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.